Is there a real or perceived conflict between faith and science? Today, you'll hear from our frequent guest, Andrew Root, who teaches youth and family ministry at Luther Seminary. He wants to show that cognitive dissonance between science and faith is contrived, and that working with young people can provide opportunities for better navigating questions about God and the world around us. His new book is Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. It feels like a basic starting point would be to ask the question, is there inherently some sort of cognitive dissonance between faith and science? Yeah, I mean, I think the what you know this this book is born out of this grant that we're doing called Science for Youth Ministry, which isn't the sexiest title you've ever heard, um, but uh, <laughs> is trying to uh, trying to deal with this. I mean, because we do know, I guess, from certain empirical studies that one of the reasons that young adults disaffiliate from from the church and and from faith more generally is because uh, they don't want to be the kind of people who don't believe in science. So there is, so there is a certain kind of cultural perception that uh faith and science don't go well together but of course i mean for decades now i mean a long time uh theology and science have been in conversation and, and all sorts of good work has been done to show that there there's actually a way for them to be in discourse and to complement each other so i don't think that they're inherently in conflict however and i think this is a contribution of the book i think it's a quite different conversation to try to talk about uh, theology in science or religion in science. And it's different when that pivots into ministry in science. And um, that's really where this book wanted to land is to think about these faith and science conversations and maybe conflicts, though I don't think there needs to be a conflict, but tensions and think of them through the practice of ministry. And um, that hasn't as, I don't think that's been done as much as more philosophical, more theological conversations. So, um, and I think when you're working with young people or you're just, you're just a pastor in general, uh, big questions of, 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 of science come up and they come up as people are trying to make sense of their faith life. Um, and so that's where I wanted to push the book into actually thinking about this conversation, not through philosophy or theology, though there's a lot of philosophy and theology in it. There's a lot of scientific theories in it, but to try to think of it through the practice of ministry itself. Mm-hmm. When we talk about whether or not there's cognitive dissonance, right, between faith and science, you, you find you describe scientific findings, and then you describe um, science as a comprehensive social practice. Yeah. Can you break those things down? <laughs> it's embarrassing, actually, when you say it back to me, uh, because it, <laughs> it, it feels so like jargony and crazy. But We're nerdy uh, folks. Let's go there. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. So, I mean, w- this was kind of a breakthrough for me, and this doesn't necessarily come out in the book because I just take a different track. But when we did this planning grant uh, for this John Templeton Foundation grant, and you're told when you first time you reference the Templeton Foundation, you have to say the full name. So the Sir John Templeton Foundation. Um, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, when we started this grant, we did a planning grant as you do with with grants. And so we did research with young people and then um, like focus groups with young people and then some focus groups with with youth workers, and we found that every youth worker, whether they were incredibly conservative or pretty liberal, was willing to say that there was a conflict between faith and science. Hmm. And yet when we asked their kids, like did focus groups with their young people, almost conclusively the young people said there were not, there was no conflict between faith and science. 
That's fascinating. And this it baffled me for a year and a half how you could get youth workers to almost overwhelmingly conclusively say there's a conflict and yet their own kids would say there's not. And then it finally dawned on me, which gets to your your question, which is that I think when youth pastors heard science and when young people heard science, they heard two different things. That they weren't they weren't defining the word the same way. And the way that youth pastors were defining science is yeah, in this embarrassing, uh, convoluted way, this comprehensive social practice, that they that's how they were seeing it. They were seeing it um as scientism, as some people say, or when I do presentations on this, I put science in quote marks, the sense that almost like science is a religion or science is such a way of life that it encompasses all others. And when you do see it that way, then of course there's a conflict between faith and science because faith is faith is a, a social practice as well um, that has a pretty pretty broad and specific vision. Um, and um, and if science basically has the, has the same kind of social practice um, perspective, then uh, then of course there's a conflict. But when young people heard science, I, it dawned on me what they thought of were theories, findings, the actual work, ac- the actual scientific work, mm-hmm. and there's no conflict there. And that did echo to me, you know, what I referenced earlier with Charles Taylor, where he's saying like the theories and theorems of scientific work don't conflict with the belief in a personal God, but this science as a social practice, science as Richard Dawkins uses it in a much softer way, science as Neil deGrasse Tyson uses it, um, that is in conflict because that uh, that has its own faith claims and that has its own practices and that has its own kind of normative assertions that often often stand in the way. Now, I'm not trying to say that it's an easy relationship once you get those those terms straightened up. But I think that helps us kind of understand what we're doing here. And what the book is really trying to relate is how you can take these young people who are actually doing scientific work, a lot of them, some of them getting D minuses doing it, but others getting A pluses, actually doing scientific work, and then move into a conversation about faith. So, um, I think that's one of the feels big- like a place you can actually engage. Yes, right. right. If it's a scientific finding, whether it's you know technological or biology, you know biology or cosmology, versus this kind of social practice. Um, I was fascinated that you called Neil deGrasse Tyson the high priest uh-huh. and Richard Dawkins what the apologist, something like that. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fascinating to think about. Uh, it hints that it would be something that would demand your allegiance. Yeah. And I think in a certain way it does. And I know, you know, at one level, we all like Neil deGrasse Tyson, but like when you watch Cosmos in some of these shows and you watch his show, uh, what's it called? Um, I don't know, Star, Star Effect or something. It's on some cable channel. I should know this. Like the one thing I'm good at is knowing TV shows. Uh, <laughs> but when you hear him talk about religion, it's just very clear that any kind of religious claim or claim of faith is a less mature position. It's a diminished position. Um, And so that kind of shows you that science, again, to put it in quote marks, gets elevated to this kind of place of its own all-encompassing religion. And I think one of the things that's helpful, I mean, that's maybe interesting for people when they think pop culture stuff, but what's really helpful if you're a youth pastor, even a pastor, is that it's not good practice and it actually is impossible to try to relate with your seventh graders, a conversation between faith and science. I mean, it's just impossible. Hmm. How would you do that? And um, I think we get stuck in that. I mean, you can only go to some really abstract philosophical conversation, but if what we're relating is actually faith 
in scientific findings and theories, it actually directs our practice because exactly what you were saying, then we have to actually put in dialogue specific scientific work. So it would be utterly boring to anyone to have a conversation about faith and science, except the 1%, the 0.1% of people who are interested in philosophical questions. But it could be really fascinating for a lot of people to put um, uh, neurobiology in conversation um, with prayer. And, and what that does. Mm-hmm. So to actually mm-hmm. pick a scientific theory and, and work that, and then that I think pulls us out into the full congregation. Cause then we actually can have conversations with people who are doing scientific work in our congregation and um, invite them into conversation with our, our young people. So, uh, you know, this whole debate or this whole conversation about faith and science, really what I'm trying to get behind here is the kind of conversation we want to have is to really pick up specific scientific theories and put those in conversation with specific practices of the Christian faith. So you talk throughout the book about a lot of kind of intellectual giants, some of whom are in the scientific community, some are in the theological community, and some inhabit both spheres, you know, to varying degrees, um, if we're talking about them in separate spheres, which I is problematic, probably. Um, but let's talk about Darwin specifically. Okay. Um, in part because he's so uh, recognizable. Um, people have tons of assumptions probably about Darwin, some of which are right and wrong. Um so in theory, he has two dangerous ideas. Why don't you think Darwin is dangerous? Yeah, well, one of the – so p- potentially, I, I'm probably a terrible advocate for my book because I, on these podcasts, I like to tell people what might be wrong with the book. Um, but there's a lot going on in the book, but I tried to to tell it all through stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have the story of Jared, the youth worker, and his young people, but then – when I'm going to take you in to say, talking about big bang cosmology, I want you to see the stories behind it. And it's one of the most interesting things about the history of science of of scientific work is that there are real people, there's personalities behind here. And Darwin Mm -hmm. is, is a big one. And Darwin has been such a, um, I don't know. Darwin is just, he's, he's, he's been the boogeyman for, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, even people who don't want to be like reactionary anti-evolution people tend to kind of feel like Darwin is the love child of Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that's who Darwin really is. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book, that's really inspired for my partner in this grant, um, David Wood, which is to try to reframe the history a little bit. Cause I think young people, they somehow by osmosis take in the history of science that really is been history. That's been, warp for propaganda purposes, usually by those science advocates. And again, science and quote marks there, the people who want to use science over and against religion and Galileo's one, but obviously Darwin is the other. And when you get behind the history of Darwin, he, he's an interesting guy. He's really not the love child of, of Hannibal Lecter and Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. He's, he's more like uh Lord Grantham from, um, uh, Downton Abbey or something. Oh, he suddenly got kind of docile on me. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, actually that's, I guess, you know, Downton Abbey's like, I don't know, four or five decades after Darwin's time or something, <laughs> maybe 50 years after his time, but you get the kind of point. And again, yeah. you, you see, I, I just see everything through television shows. So mm-hmm. that's how, that's how I, I, uh, narrate my world, but uh, that's more who he is. You know, he's like this genteel English gentleman who is just kind of a, a 
a B student at best, you know, and his whole family has been doctors and they've gone to Edinburgh and learned medicine. And this is like, you know, this is middle of the 19th century and Darwin goes and he's got his own stomach issues. I mean, so he's a, he's a kind of sickly guy, you know, and he's not a great student and he's not sure he wants to be a doctor. It's third generation. And then he has to watch surgeries and you can imagine, I don't know if you've seen the um, TV show, the Nick on, on Cinemax. It's I've not. It's a Soderbergh show. It's really, really good. It's about uh, just early 20th century New York City, like the Knickerbocker Hospital and like how medical work was done back then. And it is, it's, it's shocking. I like, don't think I could handle it. Well, like even, this is hard for us to get our head, head around, but like surgery used to be done. You could go to a barber shop after the civil war and get surgery done. Oh, that's wow. how it used to work. So your barber was essentially a surgeon. Like it, it, this whole medical infrastructure hadn't been there yet. And this is like, you know, 120 years ago, this would happen. So, I mean, could you imagine like, you know, having open heart surgery at your barber or, no. I mean, you know, not to be crass, but you're having a vasectomy at your, at, at great clips. Like that's horrifying to think about. <laughs> like that is absolutely horrifying. And Darwin couldn't stomach it. Well, <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Darwin saw that. But Darwin actually saw a a young like girl have have to have surgery, a child have to have surgery, and he could absolutely not take it. And the only way he could kind of soothe his horror of having to watch this 19th century surgical procedures go on was to go beetling, which also I just find hilarious. Like the most devastating man of Christian faith ever was super into beetles, you know, like he loved walking streets. Yeah. And so, I, you know, it seems like it's like a, you know, a, a hipster exercise in Brooklyn or something. People who <laughs> knit and beetle. And that's kind of what Darwin was, you know. So uh, long story longer is just that um, he f- basically fails out of medical school and his father, who's just called the doctor. I mean, you can get this British, you know, high culture thing, realizes he's not going to pay for medical school anymore. And he needs a job and a noble job for his boy. So he sent him to Cambridge and he starts studying divinity. So he's going to become a parish pastor, like a country parish pastor. Because Those he- who can't. Hack it in the medical field. Go to seminary. seminary, That's right. Mm -hmm. So he goes there and, you know, and so it's just a really shocking thing that supposedly the one guy who destroys Christian faith is really a, 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 you know, a seminary student who's really super close to becoming a, a, a pastor if he doesn't go on the Beagle, you know, and have be basically, you know, have his his Forrest Gump, Walter Mitty uh, world experience, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going around around the world and becoming a famous naturalist. Mm-hmm. But that he still really supported the church. And it, it took him a long time to even publish um, uh, his his evolutionary theory because he didn't want to undercut the importance of the clergy. And English society was pushing back against the clergy class because they thought they were overpaid. And he really respected the the Church of England and the clergy there. And so he held back on his theory. But I don't want to go on into this too much longer, but just that what's interesting about Darwin is, yeah, he did have his big questions about faith, but they were not necessarily because of his theory of evolution. They were because his nine-year-old daughter, Anna, who he loved deeply, ended up dying and dying mm-hmm. in his arms while his wife was back um, at home in uh downhouse uh pregnant and about to give birth to another child and this guy who could barely stomach watching a kid suffer was an incredibly sensitive soul had to uh have his this daughter he loved died in his arms and he never went back to church after that happened so darwin is not 
someone who's trying to pull down the church. He's a brokenhearted father and he's a scientist and that leads him to have certain questions, but he still supported the church. He still walked his family to their village church every Sunday and he would drop them off at the door and then he would go walk in the woods because that had always been his sanctuary. You know, that had always been the place that, that kind of uh, was medicine to his own soul. So, uh, and then just the last note that people can read in the book is that Asa Gray, who was a Harvard botanist and was good friends with Darwin, they exchanged over 200 letters. And Asa Gray was a committed um, kind of Nicene Christian, a a Presbyterian. And uh, and it was a big debate at Harvard at this time because Unitarians were coming through and those who held on to the Nicene Creed and those who didn't. And he really held on to Orthodox Christianity. And he saw from the very beginnings that God could act and move through evolution and didn't see any reason why it had any, any sense of kind of atheism connected to it. But um, Mm -hmm. it's been used that way, but uh, I don't think it has to, has to be perceived in in that light. So I think, I think Darwin has to be redeemed for us in a certain way. Yeah. You talk about big infinities and little infinities. What do you mean by that? Well, okay. So, I mean, this is, this is a, this is a conversation we're having, you know, this is, this podcast is a, a Princeton a seminary, seminary podcast. So I'm just totally ripping that off from the late great Jim Loader um, and, okay. and Loader's uh, nearly incomprehensible book, brilliant, but incomprehensible book, The Night's Move really talks about that, how God meets us in the great infinity, the, 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 great infinity and the small infinity um and in this mm-hmm. the sense of the the mass of the universe how huge space time is but then also at the small quantum level so i think what loader is really pointing to is both kind of a you know a quantum theory and uh, relativity really um and so um yeah and so i think that becomes part of part of the issue for young people is um the universe is this big could god care about me um, and there's a fear almost of being swallowed up of swallowed lost in that. Yeah. of swallowed up by that. And then, but then you can also go the other level down to the smallest of infinity and thinking like, you know, the smallest, um, sub particle and think, well, my gosh, how, how is there any, how is there any meaning here at all? Or man, my gosh, there's an incredible amount of meaning here. So I, I guess it's just a, a tip of the hat, both to loader and a tip of the hat. I, one of the things to confess that maybe people listening to this connected to Princeton will be interested in is that I, it never, Jim Loader, I've I always been a huge fan, but it wasn't until reading Einstein and a lot about Einstein in some of these scientific debates that Loader made more sense to me. Um, hmm. And uh, yeah. And, you know, people know where, where Jim lived in the house that Kennedy now lives in right there on Mercer street. And what's fascinating is Einstein's house, of course, is just, a few houses down. Yeah, and so, just down the road. Yep. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I mean, this is the things like when I lived in Princeton, I just regretted I wasn't a big Einstein fan because I, you know, I just think of that street right between, right in front of the library there of, of Einstein walking that street trying to find his unified theory, you know, how he can bring mm-hmm. the big infinity and the small infinity together. That's walking that very street trying to figure it out um, is 
it's kind of remarkable to think about. And that's the, he never figured that out, did he? He never figured it out. And actually, if you even watch, I mean, this is, we got to do it this way. I mean, if we got to talk through movies, but if you watch Interstellar, you know, the movie with Matthew McConaughey, um, mm-hmm. the Christopher Nolan movie, that's pretty sweet. Oh, totally freaked me out. Yep. Yeah. Um, but that's like the whole point of that movie too, is they're looking for the unified theory because the only way they can get people off earth and to this new planet is, is they have to find some unified theory between relativity and, and quantum theory. And of course we've, we've, we've still never found it. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of fun that way. So. Yeah. Um, so let's shift gears and talk a a little church history. Okay. You've, you've mentioned creeds a little bit. Um, at one point you hop back and you get into the Aryan controversies. Yeah. Which could seem disconnected. Um, (laughs) are you saying it it is disconnected? No, because it could be. No, you've mentioned a couple times though when you were talking about um, Darwin and Gray yeah. and why it was important that you know Gray was a Nicene Christian. Yeah. So why do you hop back to the Aryan controversies and how in the world does that relate to this conversation? Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, really, this is another. I, I think I'm echoing another thinker that I, I was inspired by this this person as well who has connections to Princeton. Um, uh, in different ways, but, um, and was connected to Jim Loader as well as, uh, Thomas Torrance. And so, um, TF Torrance has written a bunch mm-hmm. on faith and science, which I find very compelling. I find his theology to be really insightful, but then his work around faith and science is, is, is incredibly insightful. And what's great about Torrance, of course, I think I tell the story in the book is that, you know, he was a student of Karl Barth and, uh, you know, we all know Barth's big, big move was of course to talk about God's holy otherness and how there's no point of contact between the created realm and knowledge and revelation of God, that God inbreaks, that God is free, that God breaks, breaks in. And so, um, you know, and then the most famous, the most famous article with the best title, I guess, most famous for its notorious title was Bart's article, uh, responding to, to, uh, Bruner's, uh, assertion that there was a point of contact, um, 1930s with the, just a response nine and you know there no there's no point of contact mm-hmm. so to have one of Karl Barth's students become arguably the the leading theologian of the 20th century late, the late 20th century on on faith and science is seems to be quite a contradiction um, but but what Torrance actually did was drawing from Bart and his inspiration from from Einstein had really make this strong argument that I'm convinced by that, uh, that science is actually dependent on a certain perspectives. It did not inherit that it inherited, that it didn't create in itself. And one of those really is, this the sense that the world is something to be embraced, that the world is something, um, uh, to take joy in that the world is something to welcome and to be curious about. And that it really was this breakthrough that starts with, Alexander to Athanasius to the Cappadocians that uh, really kind of breaks this uh, dualistic kind of Hellenistic perspective of matter uh, being bad and uh, the earth uh, and, and yeah, the earth and the created realm, something to escape from to be something to really embrace that now that God had entered into our world uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was not just a creature, but true God of true God, begotten, but not made as the Nicene Creed says that this, that this has a new purchase on the way we even engage our world. And it takes, you know, another thousand years or so over a thousand years, but eventually uh, science embraces the world, loves the world, um, 
wants to explore the contingent factors of, of, of the world and the laws that, of the natural realm and it inherits that, it would have never got there without kind of nicing Christianity. And Torrance does these beautiful things of showing how Einstein was so enamored, um, which Einstein didn't really have a personal God and really, you know, wasn't a person of faith necessarily, but Einstein was drawing a lot of, uh, the inspiration for his theory construction from James Clark Maxwell, who came up with um, electrical fields and Clark Maxwell. Um, and he was the guy who came up with the equation to, to uh, figure out how fast light actually moved. So, you know, he wasn't a dumb dude, um, but he was saying like his inspiration for field theory, electrical field theory came from thinking about, about the, the Nicene Creed. Um, and, and that was inspired and he was inspired by Faraday. Um, and Faraday was also a really committed Christian. So there's a sense of the kind of the Nicene imagination that, that leads into this. And then Torrance gets kind of cheeky. And I think, a. a a fun way where he, he talks about how the rigid laws of Newton, which are overthrown by Einstein, that, uh, that Newton said privately, it was privately, but that he was an Aryan Christian, you know, this, this sense of things being rigid and, and Arian's whole point that Alexander and Athanasius overthrow is he just, you know, he just feels like it's logical, right? Like fathers are always greater than their sons, you know, and I'm a dad, I have a 13 year old. So by Arian, you mean non-Trinitarian, right? The non-Trinitarian, yeah. yeah. So Arius, you know, uh, around, around uh, Alexander, uh, Alexandria at this time. And so he's, you know, people are still trying to just work out who is Jesus here. And his mm-hmm. point is like, Jesus is an important guy, but uh, fathers are all greater than their sons. And like I said, I have a 13 year old. It's, it's true. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> So his point is like Jesus is a special guy, but he's a creature. He's he's not true God of true God, and he's he's begotten and therefore made. And of course, the whole Nicene controversy that leads to the Nicene Creed is to claim that Jesus is something very different, and to continue with our that Jesus Jesus is true God of true God, begotten but not made. Um, mm-hmm. So not not um, not a creature, but but uh, but actually the the, the Creator come come in flesh, and. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of draw from that. And what I, what I find really fascinating about that and try to uh, kind of pull, pull into the church history there is that what leads to that liberation for Alexander and Athanasius or that kind of unique take is that Arius is a philosopher, you know, and this is just a logical argument. But um, Alexander and Athanasius are pastors and doing ministry opens up a deeper level of um of experience and uh, of encounter uh, that that leads to this breakthrough. So it's really a pastoral theology that that breaks this open. So I'm trying to continue to hit those beats. But uh, Torrance's point that I find really interesting is he says that Newton, who has these rigid laws, um, rigid order, was really inspired by Arius, called himself an uh, Arian Christian, um, where the people who inspired Einstein to this open system of encounters and paradoxes and um, was people who were really dwelling on Nicene Christianity, where um, Jesus fully divine, fully human, as as the Chalcedonian uh, Chalcedonian pattern would then state later on. So, um, yeah, so Just full of complexity and all of that. Yeah, full of complexity and encounter and 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 paradox and um, yeah, beautiful uh, contingent realities that are surprising and yet dependable things like that. So for the folks who do feel that they've outgrown their faith or they've moved on in a sense from their faith, um, what kind of thoughts do you have about that? You, we touched on this a bit at the beginning of our conversation that there's this idea of almost maturity, yeah. um, growing up. I mean, this has everything to do with, you know, some of the assumptions we have about childishness. Yeah. Um, 
and adulthood and coming of age and and all of that. Yeah, well, my my first my first point would be that I I, I find an inherent inconsistency or almost uh, to be kind of blunt, hypocritical stance on again science in quote mark science as a uh, or in parentheses science as a um um uh science as a social practice that what what i find in, inconsistent is that it says like well it, you need to outgrow a personal god or you know like like you're saying the sense of maturity or whatever and um yet the greatest the greatest uh thinkers who came up with sci- scientific theorems and theories and just go to Einstein. Einstein said his genius was that he never stopped thinking like a child. You know, like when he was walking Mercer Street, even in the 1950s, looking for his unified theory, he was trying to engage the world as a child, which I think just really echoes like the book of Matthew, you know, where, where Jesus turns to the child. And so, um, I mean, at one level, I just think I don't, I don't know that there's a way to actually embrace the world as a gift as beautiful without embracing it in some way through the eyes or um in a childlike way um that may be different than embracing it in utter maturity uh, immaturity and stupidity but the wisdom of the child i think is there and i think it's there in scientific work and i think it's there in the christian faith so i think it i think it's a propaganda move that doesn't actually really really work yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's a childlike thing to think like, what, what is going on? What, what does it mean that a man was in the belly of a fish? You know, um, I think it's actually a diabolically immature thing to just say it happened like that way. You read it like that way. Don't even think about it. You know, like to really have to wrestle with the complexity of what that means, of how that, of how that could work. Maybe, it, maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it's to make a bigger point. I think actually prepares young people to 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 have a, a faith that embraces the world in this kind of childlike way, um, but not in this uh, kind of closed eyes, uh, ignorant way. If that that makes sense. Well, children have a great way of asking questions, making observations yeah. that. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, bring a sense of wonder and curiosity. Exactly. And- one of the clips that I show when I do presentations on this is uh, it was right off the PBS news hour and they were talking about who won the Nobel prize in physics. And I should remember the guy's name, but I can't, but they go like to this guy, he might've even been at Princeton at Princeton university and uh, talking about how, you know, you've won this prize. What's it like? And he just says in this totally physics nerdy way, he says, you know, you don't go into physics. Um, you can't even really look at the camera. He's so shy. You, can, uh, you don't go into physics to win prizes. You go into physics to find neat stuff. That's what you go into physics for. To find neat stuff. And I use that example as like, that's what scientific work is about. It's about finding neat stuff. And you have to kind of be an eternal child to think, you know what I want to spend my life doing is finding neat stuff. But mm-hmm. in many ways, that's what's beautiful about about scientific work. And again, to echo what we talked about Torrance earlier, the drive, the the kind of held good, that it's good to look into the world and find neat stuff in the world, that uh, scientific work inherits that from uh, a certain form of uh, Christianity with a deep incarnational sense that the world is a place that can be neat, that can be a gift, um, and is not something to escape, but something to actually find God within um, and God in relationship with. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. 
On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening. <laughs>